this is Ian Bezik. I am the host of Bezik on Stocks. As always, nothing here is financial advice. This is for entertainment purposes only. And with that, let's get into it. It's tax loss selling season. And selling season more generally, thanks to the one-two punch of the Fed tapering announcement and the latest COVID-19 uh, variant, the Omicron. And so... This has created quite the opportunity as far as tax loss selling goes, because now we're having real selling on top of the tax loss selling. Uh, First, what is tax loss selling? Particularly, I know there's a lot of uh, non-American listeners. So this is a, I I believe this happens in other countries, but it's specifically a U.S. phenomenon where people want to uh, pay lower tax, obviously. And any sales that happen before the end of the year can go to offset uh, gains on other securities. And so oftentimes people will start planning to see see what they can sell before the year ends. And so in November, and then particularly in December, people want to get losers off their books so they can lock in the loss, uh, how it goes. If you sell a stock and then you stay out of it, you don't buy it again for 30 days. You get to realize that as a capital loss. So many people are doing that now. Uh, maybe they will sell one stock, say, so you sell AT&T, for example, and then you buy Verizon. That works. You get to realize the loss on AT&T, get a lower cost basis in another telecom company since they've both been going down. Um, and so a lot of people do that to avoid taxes. Uh, mutual funds and hedge funds also are engaged in tax loss selling. They... They want to clean out their portfolios. They t- they typically get a lot of new money at the end of the year, and then in the beginning of 2022, the next year, uh, due to when people are timing their retirement uh, contributions. And so this is a good time for, for funds to hit the reset button. That's what my understanding is. Mutual funds, their tax year ends at the end of October. And so they may actually be done, as far as from an optimizing tax standpoint, they may actually be done tax loss selling for the year. But that's a little known fact. Uh, Whereas individual investors can sell through the end of December and still lower their taxes. Uh, So we see that phenomenon going on. And this explains a lot of the momentum that you see in stocks, particularly at the end of the month or the end of the quarter. uh, Because you have the momentum traders, algos, uh, that that will buy stocks that are going up and sell stocks that are going down. And so this creates kind of a spiral. And I would argue we've really seen that this year with Kathy Woods uh, Holdings, the ARK Invest, and her other, uh, she's got a whole array of ETFs now, the genomic revolution and 3D printing and the space one. And these have been taking in billions of dollars earlier in the year. I think the flagship ARK fund hit more than 20 billion in assets at the beginning of the year. Uh, now that these funds have been getting routed, her genomic revolution fund, for example, is now down 35% year to date, whereas the corresponding NASDAQ index is up 25%. So just brutal 60% underperformance. Uh, and obviously people have been selling that fund, which causes all of the holdings in that fund uh, to go down because when money flows out, she has to sell stocks equally to meet redemptions. And then you've got hedge funds that are that are shrewd that are looking at her selling and saying, hey, we want to we want to front run her. And so people have been shorting her stocks. So anything that she's a big holder of, like some of her top positions are like Teladoc uh, and Spotify and Roku, I believe, and Tesla. And kind of Tesla has been the only one that's held up. But her other stocks have just been getting destroyed, like Stoneco, a Brazilian one that she owns, is down 80% now since March. And so... You just look on a day like today, it was up a little bit this morning and then it just dropped 10% in the afternoon because people are just like, we <laughs> we want out of this. And they knew that she was going to have to sell more because her ARC fund was down another, what, 6 7% today. So obviously she's getting redemptions when she has to sell, you know, you know, it's just kind of safe to sell in front of her. So people have just been dumping these companies. Uh, and so that just times in nicely with the tax loss selling that I was talking about where people And overall, despite the carnage we've seen over the past couple of weeks, the market as a whole is still up, what, 20, 25% this year. So people have big gains. A lot of people uh, that bought stuff in 2020, it's become long-term capital eligible that you pay the lower tax because you've held longer than 12 months. So people sold a lot of the the COVID winners this year. have big gains. They have to sell stuff to offset it. And then you've just got these just collapsing stocks and SPACs and software and payments 
And so people are just dumping this stuff like, hey, I don't want to see it anymore. Just get it off my sheet. And so uh, we've got maybe another two or three weeks of that to look forward to. But then it's Christmas, New Year's, new tax year. Uh, people start over. Funds will not uh, need to keep indiscriminately dumping the stuff anymore. And that creates the opportunity we're getting to tonight to look through uh, the stocks that have just gotten pummeled this year and see uh, what opportunities there might be. To to see what's down, I like to use a site called Finviz. I believe it's F-I-N-V-I-Z. I'm not affiliated with them or anything. It's just it's a good tool. And so happy to shout them out. They've got an excellent free screener that you can use to 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 get a quick look at things. So if you're looking at stocks that are down big this year, I've sorted uh, by companies that are over a $2 billion market cap. So that gets sort of just tiny little companies uh, and then sorted by how much they're down year to date. And so looking at that list through yesterday, so not including today's losses, but through yesterday, we had three stocks down 90% or more, which were all Chinese companies. Probably not surprising given uh, what's happened in, with the, the collapse of the Chinese stocks this year. Then after that, you have Stoneco, which I mentioned, uh, Bright Health Group, number five, Context Logic, Take Your Wish, Tuya, Paysafe, C3.ai, Peloton, and the list goes on. And you can go through the top 50, the 50 biggest losers of the year, and they're all down 55% or more. So just absolute crush on all these names. And it's even worse if you consider from a peak to trough. That's just the year to date. But a lot of these stocks were up in February and March. So a lot of these are down 70, 80% from their peak. Uh, and I don't know how to share an image on this call, unfortunately, but uh, from the screener, if you were seeing it, you'd see that uh, on the P, maybe only, let me see, only about a dozen of those 50 biggest losers have a P. So like the vast majority of these companies don't have earnings. And maybe some of them didn't have earnings because of COVID, but the majority of these companies don't have earnings because they haven't proven their business model yet. Maybe they're a biotech company that they're trying to research drugs, but they don't have a working drug yet. Or they're a software company that doesn't have enough users to make a profit yet, but they say, hey, in five years, we'll be big enough. We'll achieve scale and we'll make money. Uh, or you've got these Chinese companies that who knows what their financials are. It's just hard for us to know as outsiders. And so, and then you've got like the SPACs that, that a lot of them came to market just with prototypes like, hey, trust us, our electric vehicle will work and we'll build a factory someday or we'll build a battery plant someday. In 2026, we'll have revenues. But uh, obviously, we there's no earnings today. And now in this sort of market, people don't want promises. People want actual results. People want earnings and dividends again. And so that's your list of the biggest losers. I'd say most of these are not really investable from a long-term perspective. There's very few of these names that you could just buy and say in five or 10 years, I know they're going to be worth more today than uh, more in 2030 than they are today. Maybe there's a few of these that you could buy as a kind of coffee can, stick it in your, in your safe and don't worry about it. But I'd say the vast majority of these are stocks for trading, not stocks for owning indefinitely. So if you're going through names like these, I would say you're wanting to look for things that have short-term catalysts, like high short interest, or they're about to announce a new product, or they've got, uh, like if it's a biotech, they've got a trial readout coming up. You'd want something where, where it's actionable, because like I said, these are tax loss selling names. They're down uh, probably more than they should be from for, for technical reasons, but they're just not very good businesses in general. <laughs> and so you'd want to be strategic in terms of timing and entry and exit on most of these. They're not something that you just say, oh, it's done a lot, so I'll buy it and look at it again in a few years. Uh, I do own a few of these. Like I, I own C3AI. Let's see, I own, I just recently bought Stoneco. And there's the PaySafe was on this list as well. That one, I opened the put position that we talked about on a, uh, the short put. So essentially long position that we talked about on a previous episode. Uh, but yeah, those are, I'm looking through the list. I believe those are the only three that I own of the 50 biggest 
losers of the year because like I said, there's just a lot of, of low quality companies here. So I would say moving on, I use another uh, screener and um, Finviz and this one I would say gives uh, better results. This one uh, is the stocks are down the most, but also pay a dividend. And so that excludes almost all of the the lowest quality stocks. It gets rid of the biotechs that don't have any revenue. It gets rid of the SPACs. It gets rid of the SaaS companies that haven't reached scale yet. Uh, so it, basically, if a company pays a dividend, it has to be able to produce cash flow and earnings, uh, or else what would it pay a dividend with? Uh, and so having a dividend at least proves that, that the company's business model is robust. And, and there's a better chance that these companies will be things that you'll want to own for the long term. So let's see, what are the biggest losers for the year that meet this screen? Global payments. Uh, interestingly, none of these are down more than 45%, whereas on the other list, you have stocks down 80, 90%. Uh, just because when you don't have profits, when you, in some cases, don't have revenues, so there's very little protecting your downside. It's all story, story and whatever cash they managed to raise in their IPO. But aside from that, if you don't have revenue, if you don't have profits, and particularly if you don't have revenues, you have very little protection for your 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 investment. But on on companies that pay dividends, you know at least they're profitable usually, and they've proven their business model enough that they've returned cash to shareholders. So of these, the biggest loser uh, year to date is Global Payments (GPN), which I own, and it's down forty five percent. And then let's see what are the let me bring up the list here. Uh, bu- bu- bu. Then you've got Gryphus. That one I don't know. Market Access, number three. Activision Blizzard, number four, which we talked about the other evening. Uh, Brookfield Renewables, number five. Uh, Philips, some mining companies, some Korean companies, uh, more healthcare companies. Uh, not all household names, to be sure, but uh, some companies we've heard of. And uh, more interesting, 17 of the 20 of these that are down are profitable, or at least were profitable in the last year. Uh, I'd say this is a much more interesting hunting ground. Uh, like market access, which I listed, for example, uh, used to be one of the most popular stocks on, on Fintuit on, on social media. It was a darling. It was taking market share from the traditional. It's a bond trading software company. And it was trading up to 80 times earnings at one point because it appeared to be an inevitable uh, growth company. But then, uh, unfortunately, somebody built a, me- a better mousetrap, a company called TradeWeb. And so they've been losing market share. And now they've fallen from 80 times earnings to, fo- to 40 times earnings. Uh, but hey, if you're at 40 times earnings, that's still pretty expensive if your earnings are increasing. So that one's a pass for me. Activision Blizzard, like I mentioned, I, I think it's interesting, but there's enough concerns that it's not an obvious buy to me but it might be worth uh if you're looking for gaming stock it might be worth it there's a lot of foreign foreign companies on the list but uh foreign banks in particular banks from brazil banks from peru banks from from asia some of these are i'm sure some of these are good values but i have big positions in the colombian banks right now and those seem like very obvious values to me so i haven't done the work to have an opinion on so the Brazilian or the Asian banks. Uh, moving down the list to the to the stocks that are down slightly less on the year, we start getting into the big household names like AT and T, for example, is the twenty fourth worst performer on the screen. Uh, I think everyone knows why that's happened with the dividend cut and them trying to spin off their media assets. Um, and uh, if you've read my stuff for a while, you know that I, I hate this management team. I'd call them the worst in America, and I think that's a, a very valid claim to make. Like every M&A deal they've made from AT&T Mexico, DirecTV, obviously, the Time Warner, they've all been fiascos. It's like, oh, if they just spent that cash on on paying down debt or buying back stock, they could have created so much shareholder value because the core business is a good one. And yet they've just frittered away tens of billions of dollars on, on totally wasted stuff. And so as much as, as I don't like to say it, you'll probably make a decent return buying the stock at this price. I mean, it's just gotten hammered. It's under seven times uh, recurring earnings. Earnings should actually go up once they get rid of the 
proportionally once they get rid of the media business because they'll have less debt to have to handle. And so uh, I think you would probably actually make money buying AT&T here. Uh, but do you really want to partner with the worst management team in the U.S., particularly when something like Verizon is now also selling below where it was selling in March of 2020? Like, uh, and T-Mobile has gotten hammered as well. If you if you want to own telecoms, I'd say look at those. Verizon in particular, the dividends back over 5%. Stock price hasn't gone anywhere for at least five years now. Uh, arguably, the, the 5G rollout will eventually make money or at least cost them less money. I think you've got a, a new cycle forming there. So that might be worth, if you're looking for bond type stocks, uh, Verizon might be worth a look here. Uh, let's see, Anheuser-Busch is down like 30% on the year. Uh, there's still, this is an incredible stat. They're responsible for every $2 of profit that's earned from the beer industry, all of the beer industry on the entire planet. Everything from, from macro brews down to your local craft brewer, 50% of every dollar of profit in beer goes to Anheuser-Busch. Uh, uh, yeah, obviously management 3G's kind of screwed it up. They took on too much debt and then they didn't know how to grow their firm. Uh, but I think at some point it will probably work out for them. The stock looks quite cheap here. I don't own it just because there's other better alcohol stocks in my opinion, but if you want something that's gotten hammered and arguably shouldn't be, like people have said, oh, it's down because of reopening. People aren't drinking as much beer in public, but that's a very short-term thing. And beer consumption is almost uh, usually has almost no association with economic or uh, political conditions. So I'd say that that one's very interesting. Um, I personally own Ambev, which is their South American subsidiary. Watch out for that one next year with the World Cup. That's a huge uh, drinking event here in South America. So. Uh, there may be a, a nice pop in the stock ahead of that as people look for their favorite World Cup stocks. Uh, let's see, moving down the list of losers, Clorox is one of the biggest losers of the year, which uh, that was just kind of undoing what they did uh, last year when obviously everyone needed to buy cleaning supplies and bought more than they probably needed. I imagine uh, many of you listening still have uh, excess uh, Clorox supplies in your pantry now. And so obviously sales have gone back down, but the stock has now returned zero since before uh, March 2020. Like if you bought the stock at the start of the pandemic, you've now made precisely zero profit on it whatsoever. And I think that's a little bit too harsh. The company had a very good year last year, which which helped shareholders. And longer term, it's it's one of those stable bond-like stocks, pays a good dividend. Uh, management seems reasonably smart from what I've seen. Uh, I think people have probably punished it too much uh, with the consumer staples. Everybody's worried about the uh, inflation pressures. Like Clorox is having to pay more for packaging. They're paying more for their labor, for their trucking to get the product to stores. But all that stuff's temporary. Like, well, I mean, the price increases are permanent, but uh, Clorox will just charge you 20 cents more when you buy the next bottle of bleach. And that price will never go back down. Like all the shipping stuff, all the labor shortages, even if all that stuff goes away, the price that you pay at the grocery store is never going back down. It's called a ratchet effect. Like once you turn that uh, turn that screw one direction, it stays there. So I'm quite optimistic for a lot of these, these staples, the consumer products companies that have gotten beaten up this year on inflation. Because it's like people are seeing half the picture. They're saying, yeah, we're losing money uh, in terms of producing the products. but but once the price increases get through, they, they tend to be sticky. Let's see, what else is on the biggest losers? Viacom CBS has been one of the biggest, one that I've gotten tons of questions on over the years. It's always looked cheap, like every, well, except for three months this spring. But other than that, it's always looked cheap. It's always, whenever you look at it, it's like eight times, nine times earnings. Uh, and there's been some special situations there that could have conceivably unlocked value. Um, it's just the it's the classic melting ice cube business. I mean, it owns CBS, which is one of the big uh, TV channels in the U.S., and then it owns cable channels like MTV, VH1, Comedy Central, uh, and these are things that, that have some value and have some fans. But obviously, it's not nearly as relevant to people in today's world with YouTube and. Netflix and everything as it was 20 years ago when if you were bored you just turned on the TV because what else was there in the house and so I don't know how much I don't know how much staying power these has as the cable bundle decreases because it's like uh, who actively 
what is the demographic of people that actively say, hey, I want to watch TV, I'm going to turn on MTV, when they have a cell phone in their hand and can watch anything in the world? I think it's a fairly small market. Uh, the Bulls will say that the, the, a lot of their streaming strategy is ad-driven, which uh, people that don't pay for a subscription, maybe they're, they're not so picky about the content they watch. And in the meantime, the stock is very cheap once we get, I believe it's on seven times earnings now. Uh, and obviously when Bill Huang and Archegos uh, were squeezing it the spring, it went from $40 to $100 in like two weeks. So obviously people have proven that the stock can be short squeezed. So I would never ever think of shorting it down here. Uh, but I think it's something to handle with care if you're involved. Uh, just be thinking about an exit strategy, maybe use coverage calls or something to get some income out of it uh, if you own it. Uh, it's probably cheap here, but I think it is a structurally declining business. Uh, moving through the losers, you've got more staples like Unilever, I think it's pretty interesting. Uh, some of the others like ConAgra, not as, not as good a management team. Uh, like all of these food companies, not all, but most of the food companies are down. Most of the cleaning, uh, personal hygiene, all that sort of stuff is down. So you can you can afford to be picky here. Don't just buy something because it's on the 52-week low list. Like there's a lot of good staples companies out there that have sold off this year. So uh, take your time choosing among them. I would say. Uh, let's see. I get through. I guess through my general overview. So does anyone want to hop on, uh, talk about any of that or anything that you've been looking at that's done a lot this year that might benefit once the tax loss selling lets up? The line is open. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just curious if you have any opinions on Jerome Powell's comments today that they may increase the um, tapering and if that might accelerate the sell-off of some of these stocks yeah i think i mean the fed's kind of been giving us signals for a few months now that the tapering was coming and i'm not sure if the market didn't believe them or whatnot but i'm not sure how much new information powell has presented but certainly it's had a market moving impact over the past few days uh and in theory tapering should uh, it should actually be good for these growth stocks in that tapering would lead to a slower economy and kind of hurt the, the normally you would expect tapering to hurt the banks and hurt the industrial companies and kind of help the growth companies that have been supported by lower interest rates and a slower economy. Uh, but oddly enough, that's not the reaction we've seen at all this week. Like instead people just keep pounding the growth stocks, but I think you're right um, from a, from a longer term perspective that it's certainly a risk. Uh, the, with stocks near, well, with the S&P near all-time highs, you have to believe that there's going to be a lot of government stimulus and uh, both like government, like the the infrastructure bill and everything, and that the Fed will remain uh, helpful. And if those factors go away, it's hard to see earnings growth in 2022. Okay. Any of these stocks in particular that are down a lot that have got you interested? Uh, the payment stocks. Yeah, I, I like a lot of these now. Any in particular that your favorite? Um, I own a GPN and Visa. Um, yep. I just I'm waiting to see when they'll bounce. They seem like they're not dropping as fast as they were, which is encouraging. Yeah, yeah, that, I agree with you there. For the first time in a little while, it seems that. That they're relatively holding up better than some of the other stuff. Uh, I saw the Visa numbers today that for uh, last month that they, they the rebound is continuing and we're seeing some cross-border improvement, which is that's the the revenues they get on international transactions, which they earn a much higher uh, fee for, particularly when there's more than one currency involved. People are willing to pay them more for handling that, and so Visa thrives when when we get global travel back so it's encouraging to see the better november numbers obviously that was a little before uh the new variant kicked in so it remains to be seen if people are going to start canceling their, their their international travel again or not but i'd say the numbers from visa in particular still look pretty good so 
Uh, I think the market's gotten ahead of itself selling all these names off. And you're right, that's kind of an ideal uh, tax loss selling sort of name because a lot of people just, uh, it's one of the stocks they've owned forever and they can get rid of it now without taking a capital gain and maybe buy it back next year is what people are thinking. Okay. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, happy to have you in. Thanks. Uh, so, Barks, I, I got the shortest memory in the world, but I, I remember you uh, writing in-depth in, info on Paysafe and uh, uh, what do you call Visa, but uh, Barks, I think, was, was also something you were looking at. Bark, B-A-R-K? Right, yeah. That yep. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's one of the SPAC names that has gotten uh, pounded. Uh, that that I find interesting. I'm not sure how familiar you guys are with the business, but it's a company that sells pet uh, pet products. Think like uh, dog toys, like bones and stuff, and food. Uh, it's a direct to consumer play, so people order through the website. It's a subscription model. Uh, so like people pay thirty dollars a month or forty dollars a month, and then they'll get a box of of pet toys or whatever for cats, dogs, birds uh, every month. And so it's called Bark Box because it's a box full of, of uh, pet toys. And it did very well in terms of growth in 2020. Everyone was kind of bored at home. And so people adopted pets at a record rate, uh, so much so that, that adoption shelters ran out of dogs at one point. So the company had big uh, growth tailwinds. It came public via SPAC with a lot of excitement. I think the stock went up to 20, uh, but now it's kind of gotten dumped with all the with all the usual, like your Pelotons and Teladocs and Zoom video. Everything that went up with the, the pandemic is now going down. And people have viewed BarkBox as just kind of another, uh, another fad or flash in the pan sort of business. However, I see it as having real sticking power. The subscription numbers have looked good this year. Even there was some concern once people started going back to work, going back to the office, that they were going to give their pets up for adoption. But the numbers haven't really supported that. And actually, a lot of people seem to be uh, staying, kind of doing a doing a hybrid model where they're working more from home and they seem to be happy with their pets. Uh, and BarkBox has been adding new products such as fresh food to their content bundle this year. Where I think it's really interesting is you've got uh, they for every dollar they've been spending on customer acquisition, they earn six dollars back in revenues, which is a tremendous ratio. Normally, in in direct to consumer spending, if you have a three to one, like you spend one dollar and get three dollars of revenues back, that's considered a win. And they're at six, which is twice that, so they can just keep pounding the the advertising to to build out the business. People look at it and say, hey, they're still losing money, but it's a subscription model. Every month they get $30 of revenue sending people a new box. And so as long as they can get $6 of revenues from for every dollar they spend on client acquisition, they should keep uh, pressing the, the pedal to the metal, in my view, on, on more marketing. But unfortunately, given current market conditions, people are looking at BarkBox and saying, hey, it loses money. It was a SPAC. It was a... It was a uh, uh, a pandemic stock so kind of all the the all the current market forces are against it uh but this is another interesting one for selling puts i believe the stock i believe it went under five dollars today so you look and you can sell four dollar puts at a reasonable price and either get the stock at three dollars or 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 get a nice premium so i think it's interesting longer term and pets continue to be a huge growth market i think the idea that the pet ownership is going to decline simply because the pandemic ended is, is not based in reality. Um, so if I'm not taking up too much uh, time, I don't see anybody else on the list. Uh, how would you maybe theoretically balance, say, selling a put? We'll take an example of a bark versus buying call. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would buy, I would look to buy a call if I had a strong view in the short term on what was going to move the stock. So if if I had a reason to think that their next earnings report was going to be a lot better than people thought, like they've launched their new food delivery, or the pet food delivery. So if I had a, a specific insight as to, like this is gonna make it pop in the next three months or six months or whatnot, 
or something was coming up, like they had a new marketing partnership with Amazon or something, uh, then then I would look to buy calls. But in general, I try to avoid calls unless I have a strong view on why I'm right and the market's wrong in the short term. Uh, whereas in this case, I don't... Uh, I don't have anything particularly that makes me say, oh, Birkbox is going to be a $10 stock in three months, which would be the sort of thing that would make me want to buy calls. Rather, it's I, I want more exposure to pets. Uh, pets is a great long-term demographic play, given uh, millennials. Uh, the, like I said, the marketing spend is very attractive there. This is a, a fantastic uh, business. It's a, it's a fantastic model they've built, and I wouldn't be surprised if one of the larger... Uh, e-commerce companies or somebody like PetSmart uh, ended up acquiring them because it's just it's a really good business but uh, they're just spending so much on marketing that public shareholders aren't appreciating it right now uh, sorry I'm getting off topic to your point but yeah I, I'm not looking to buy calls just because I don't have a view on when the stock takes off but I have a strong view that it's uh, the stock shouldn't be this low so whether the stock's at six or seven or eight uh, in six months, I think people would be happy buying the stock here and or selling puts. All right. Yeah, see, there's a few oh, oh, thanks for hopping on. on. Thanks. Oh, you're always welcome. All right, let's go to. Sorry, I do not know how to say your name. Sarab. Are you there? There should be a button at the bottom of the screen to to activate your microphone. Hello? Perfect. Okay, I see. Uh, uh, it's Saurabh, and don't worry about the pronunciation. Um, okay. Saurabh, welcome. Yeah, thanks for the comments previously. Um, read some of your work. Um, followed the last couple of podcasts um kind of just wanted to continue the thoughts on growth stocks um i i read through the piece on paysafe um and you mentioned uh kind of in passing like last time around as well spire um the other one that i read a little bit of your work on was a stock called rocket lab um i don't really Mm -hmm. have a short-term thesis on it um i just I'm positive on this stock and the company in the long run. Um, and just kind of wondering like what, what, what strategies slash approach would you think of first companies working in the space sector where basically like, yes, the spec, the sector is going to grow, but like eventually at some point. Um, and yes, the companies that you think are going to be performing well would actually grow their share price as well. But again, like, in in a market like right now, Rocket Lab didn't really crash as hard as I was hoping it would, so that I could buy more. Um, any particular thoughts on how that how to put play that particular segment of the market? Yeah, absolutely. I think Rocket Lab is one of the the most fascinating uh, companies. Uh, obviously, it's a lot further along than Spires, but as you mentioned, the the stock hasn't crashed either. I think the market has seen Rocket Lab's very strong fundamentals compared to the. The rest of the industry, and that's why it's still at fifteen dollars instead of being at like five dollars, like most of the specs. Uh, let's see. Let me look at the options here for a second. Uh, one one idea. Are you familiar with call spreads? Yeah. Yeah. So on looking at the January twenty twenty three call spreads on Rocket Lab, for example, it looks like the twenty dollar calls are four fifty, and the twenty five dollar calls are three fifty. So for one idea, you could buy the twenty dollar calls and sell the twenty five dollar calls. That would cost you one dollar per contract, so a hundred dollars to control a hundred shares. And then, if the stock ends up over twenty-five, it would be worth five hundred dollars. So that would be a five x return. And in that way, you're risking just the hundred dollars for the option, uh, the spread, instead of the fifteen hundred dollars for the for the same amount of stock. And that would offer a favorable uh, payoff profile. If if the stock appreciates, I'm not sure how how high you might think it might go, but 25 seems like a, a reasonably optimistic outlook over the next 12 months. Yeah, that sounds totally fair. Like, yeah, I, I think like in my head, I don't even have a thesis on how how high the stock would go. I was shocked that it went to 22 
in the beginning or 20 or something and i was like wow what what was that about and then it crashed all the way back and i was like okay i can buy more and then went to 16 and i was like no stop there um but yeah like don't really have outlook i just think the company and the stock is going to do well eventually um so thanks for that idea i'll, I'll look into that more thank you mm-hmm. yeah thanks for calling let's see i think there was someone else in the queue but they jumped off uh do they want to hop back on See. Aaron, let's see. Aaron, can you hear me? Hey. Uh yeah, I think the app's been a little glitchy today cuz it's uh it's been kicking me off and Sorry about that. Yeah, I know it just uh, there was a big update a couple of days ago, so sorry for any issues. No worries. I uh I wanted to just check in with you. I know there's no chance or very little chance you had a chance to look at AI's earnings, but it looks like they beat on uh, reaction was muted. uh given that you know the original thesis was that it was down too much and had uh you know some interesting opportunities i was curious if uh if you had any updated thoughts on on ai which is you know on, on your list of stocks or data a bunch yeah yeah it's a perfect uh question for this topic cuz yeah ai is one of the biggest losers on the year for sure Uh for people that aren't familiar it's a company focused on obviously artificial intelligence uh big data solutions for mostly for industrial applications like the energy industry uh for factories uh optimization that sort of thing the CEO and founder Tom Siebel was uh he created Siebel Systems which was the first big CRM company and grew that to I believe Oracle ended up buying it for 6 billion uh after the 2000 bust Uh, that was one of the few software companies that actually made money like if you bought in the late 90s and held through uh, the next few years that it actually returned a profit and so Siebel left obviously after Oracle bought it and created C3AI that's been his uh, baby for the last decade uh came public the stock went from I think I forget where the IPO was like 30 or $40 and went up to 180 and now it's gone back to 30 35 um they had trouble selling their software during the pandemic because they like most SaaS businesses you sell uh maybe a $50 $100 license to thousands of people whereas C3AI only has i think 80 customers total like a very small number of customers and their customers pay hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars a year to use the software so obviously no one wanted to buy this during the pandemic because they couldn't they couldn't actually talk to the sales people and and get a hands-on run through the the software and so management kept saying hey we just we couldn't sell but we'll sell once the pandemic's over and this quarter i i haven't read the full earnings release but i did look at the the summary and this quarter appears to be the first that they've actually management has followed through revenue growth is 41% year over year which i think they're only doing like 20% the past couple of quarters so sharply accelerating revenue growth and they raised guidance versus where the street had been and i'm looking the stocks only up 2% after hours which just shows the kind of dismal market for software stocks as you know if they'd missed it would have been down another 10 or 15% but hey we we beat and raised guidance so stock goes up 2% but let's see so the market cap here is 4 billion uh yeah so it's down to what is that 12 times uh, uh 23 earnings which It's still not a certainly not a giveaway but it's a far more reasonable price for a company that's now growing at 40% a year and I think can get back to 50 or 60%. Their flagship contract with Baker Hughes uh will pay I don't have the number in front of me but I believe it's 150 million of revenues in the final year which is 2024 and their entire revenue for last year was 180 million so that should give you a sense of the sort of growth here that one contract will, in 3 years will make up virtually all of the revenue they had as a whole business last year. So, I think the growth story is intact. Uh I view it as a bet on the jockey that Zebul has been tremendously successful. Like he basically invented the CRM industry and I think that his AI company is worth a shot and now it looks like they finally figured out whatever the sales problems were with the pandemic and are back on track. So I guess as a quick follow up and again I don't expect you to have this uh handy right now and I'm sorry about the background noise I'm I'm out. Uh but is there No brother I've got I've got toddlers outside the door here too. So. <laughs> uh yeah I'm just curious if there's a and maybe like a follow up option strategy that that still looks interesting to you or or whether you know you don't have that confidence yet. Thank you. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I I had had still have, but they expire in December, and obviously will be worthless. I had bought call options on AI for this year, and I will probably look to roll them out to next year. Uh, once they expire in December, yeah. In this case, I think the stack is just like like the previous caller had asked me about BarkBox, and that one I don't have a strong view on on where that stock should be. I just I see the current price is too low, but I don't know if the right price there is 20% up or 50% up and the calls are pretty expensive. But here on something like uh, AI, and the stock went from 180 now to 34. And just in the past few weeks with the, the growth sell-off, it's gone from 52 to 34. So I think that's way overdone. Now you've got an earnings beat. Uh, this is exactly, this is, this is precisely the sort of tax loss stocks that you want to buy because in January people will say, "Hey, what well, was down a, a lot in 2021 that can make a comeback?" They look for anything with positive momentum, and now uh, you finally have the first earnings beat from this company in a year. I think this is the sort of thing that will work. So, yeah, I haven't looked at the options chains yet, but I will be looking for 2023 calls on AI. Give it another shot. Yeah, and then in terms of, I guess, rolling over for for tax losses, do you do that? at or near expiration, or do you do that in advance? Uh, what's what's your general strategy there? An option? Yeah, for like for example, you said you're gonna roll the option. Would you do that? Like, would you do that at the at the point where it's about to expire, or you know, or or do it in advance? I don't know if there's any particular strategy around that. Oh, right. Yeah. So I kind of said roll colloquially, but there's nothing really to roll in this case because I bought $80 calls and obviously they will, they're worthless. Uh, but when I bought, because uh, I, when I took the position, I said either this is going to bounce a lot or it's going to keep going down because I think it was at 65 at the time. But I was like, the price here, like the options are too cheap because the stock is not staying at 65. Either it's going to keep getting smashed or it's going to head way back up. So I bought options to limit my risk because like, you pay $14 for the option and then you get a year for the stock to recover. And if it doesn't recover, then you're out $14. Whereas if I'd bought the stock, I would have lost more than $30 a share because it's dropped from 65 to 33. Uh, and so, but yeah, there's nothing really to roll here. It's just, I bought $80 calls and the stock didn't recover. So those calls will be worthless. But now let me look since we're discussing it. Let me see where the... 2023 calls are 2023. Yeah, so the 50s now, for example, are 750. The 60s are six bucks. Yeah, so you can get a pretty, those are reasonably priced. And then that way, if these growth stocks come come roaring back, or somebody goes activist or somebody wants to buy it, then those calls would hit. And yeah, that would be how I'd look to play it. Yeah, like with, with with these sorts of stocks that are just getting pummeled, I like buying leaps instead of buying the call uh, instead of buying the stock outright because it limits your your risk. Uh, yeah, if I bought AI stock outright, I would have lost a lot more <laughs> back in March. Yeah, and, and the reason why I was thinking about it is uh, I had also bought some uh, SKT puts that. Uh, what my plan is right now is to buy them again, wait 30 days, and then sell the original. So I keep the position on, but are able to harvest tax losses in the interim. Uh, you know, and again. Yes, that's correct. Because, yeah, those puts are still, those puts are not at zero. So you can sell them and then rebuy them. That's correct. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's for people that don't know, that's Tanger Factory Outlets, which owns shopping centers in remote parts of the country. And I had bought them for kind of portfolio insurance because I thought they were, the puts were reasonably cheap, uh, particularly compared to other meme stocks at the time. And if COVID had really returned in a big way and shut shopping down, uh, this company would have gotten killed because it was trading, what was it, like $10 before the pandemic? And now it's trading at 20, which really makes no sense because obviously the value of shopping centers hasn't gone up since the pandemic. But it's a weird market, 20% short interest on that stock now. So clearly, clearly it's a battleground between the, the memers and the people that look at fundamentals. But yeah, I think the value there could still get 
seriously impaired over the next year or two. Excellent. Always happy to to learn advanced techniques from you. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for calling in. Let's see. Anyone else want to hop on? Anyone else? All right, so I've got a couple of questions from readers that couldn't be on the call tonight. So the first of these was on the marijuana stocks. I believe the, they've been one of the one of the biggest losers of the year, the MSOS, which is the U.S. cannabis ETF, has fallen 21% year-to-date, and it's down 60% from its 52-week highs. Um, some of the Canadian marijuana companies are down even more. Uh, the, the ETF I just mentioned is the U.S. ones. Um, yeah, so this is a fun sector to try to analyze because these companies are very new. They're still trying to establish their business models. Some of the U.S. ones are actually profitable, but most of them aren't. Uh, and the thing that makes marijuana very complicated is, in the U.S., anyway, uh, all this is about the U.S., is that there's no there's no uniform legal model. Is it marijuana still technically illegal federally? Uh, but states have permitted its use, and so some states are very favorable licensing. Other states are very restrictive. Some states it's not legal at all. So you've got this hodgepodge of industry, of, of state regulations and companies that operate in one or several states. And people, some of these U.S. operators are profitable, which is the opposite of Canada, where pretty much everyone just lit money on fire. Uh, but the U.S. ones have done better because of the limits. Like a state will say only one marijuana operator or two marijuana operators can can go in our state. And so that keeps supply to a, to a more rational level. Uh, so in theory, they should they should make money, a highly regulated product that people want to buy. And some of these companies are profitable. However, the federal, them being illegal federally has created big issues because they they don't get to, they pay a much higher tax rate for this because they're not, uh, it's really technical and I can't explain it well, but they're, because what they're doing is not federally permitted, they don't get a lot of the deductions that they would normally get if they're operating a legitimate business in view of the government. They also pay through the nose for financing because banks don't want to lend them money uh, because banks would be participating in illegal activity if they did. And so they're kind of operating in this gray zone where they should be making a lot of money and some of them seem to be making a lot of money, but then they lose most of it in taxes and issues. There's another problem that I see very few bulls talking about, which is the management teams of these companies are generally incompetent. And I'd say it's not really their fault, but the cannabis as an industry didn't exist uh, five or 10 years ago. It only existed in the cartels. Uh, and so these management teams just, you don't have anyone that's worked at the company for 20 years and gets promoted from within and knows all the operations. Like everybody in here is a new entrepreneur that is doing it fly, uh, just kind of learning as they go. And so it's just, it's a really tough set of conditions they have to work with. They can't get access to financing. They're paying outlandish taxes. The management teams are still trying to figure out what to do. So it's a very complicated industry. In theory, it's supposed to be legalized pretty soon. Uh, Biden seems to be okay with legalizing. And Kamala, if she were to become president, seems very okay with uh, legalizing. But who knows if it can get the votes in the Senate. It's uh it's complicated and so and interestingly between the bulls and the bears you let's see uh doo -doo -doo. aaron do you want to talk on on marijuana hey. oh yeah i had a question but i didn't mean to interrupt you all right let, yeah let, uh, just stay on the line and i'll get back to you in one second yeah absolutely yeah um yeah, and so I see some bulls saying that federal legalization will be helpful because they'll get to pay lower taxes of access to bank loans and whatnot. Uh, but then other people are saying that it will be a, a net negative to them because then all of the different marijuana companies will get to compete with each other rather than each operator having kind of their own personal fiefdom, like Florida is my state or I get to operate in Nevada or whatnot. And so it's... It's very complicated, and I'd remind people that are looking at the space that in the U.S. you had more than 500 automobile companies in 1920, and by 1940, only a few dozen of them had survived, and then by 1980, you only had Ford, GM, and Chevrolet. 
And all that to say that we have dozens, if not hundreds of marijuana companies, and that's way too many. And a lot of money is being spent on on redundant services to pay a hundred different CEOs and a hundred different legal counsels. And uh, all that to say, it's a really big mess. You can probably make money buying because sentiment is rock bottom for the space now, but I'd be careful viewing it as something to buy and hold forever because it's just, it's really confusing. I've tried to wrap my head around it. Several people I respect are very bullish on the space and have 20 or 30% of their portfolios in cannabis. I wish I could get there. I just can't get there right now. And I, I really wish I could. I love ice stocks. I love alcohol, but uh, cannabis, I'm, I'm not ready. I'll, I'll get there someday, but I, I think it's still a little early to get too bullish on it. All right, Aaron. Oh, yeah, I was just, so I'm a, uh, a long-time baggie on Altria uh, MO, which I Absolutely. bought much, much higher than this, thinking that, you know, when marijuana was ultimately legalized, that, that Altria would step right in and, you know, and crush their competitors. Uh, I, I'm still bag-holding, but I'm not so confident in that, in that thesis anymore, given that it seems like each state wants to come up with their own very complex uh, set of rules that you know, give licenses to their preferred recipients. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but uh, curious if, uh, yeah, curious if you have any thoughts on that. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I own a little bit of Altria in my, the, the IMF portfolio that I write about, and then I had owned a position in our more aggressive portfolio. I believe we purchased at 39 and maybe sold at 50. Uh, when it's around or under 40, I quite like it. I view it as kind of a bond alternative in that the, the I believe their earnings are very sustainable at the current level, like 450, five bucks a share. And maybe they can grow a little bit based on the core tobacco business. People have constantly overestimated how fast that's going to decline. Actually, cigarette usage went up for the first time in 20 years, I think, last year, probably just related to the pandemic. But uh, quite an interesting statistic for an industry that's supposed to be dead already. And obviously, Altria has their stuff in the non, non, uh, what's the word? Non-smokable, anyway, non-heated uh, tobacco. So I'd say the core nicotine business is why why you'd want to own the stock. And I think I think the dividend's safe. Maybe management cuts it at some point if they have something better to invest in, but they they can cover it out of earnings for a long time. So I think if you own it, viewing it as a eight percent yielding bond. In a world where bonds don't pay anything, that totally makes sense to me. And I like buying it under 40, which it's almost under 40 again. Uh, I don't know what your cost basis is. Yeah, if you're hoping it gets to 60 or 70, you probably need something else to go right for the company. Uh, in terms of cannabis, their strategy so far hasn't really, yeah, it hasn't worked. <laughs> Just being blunt. Uh, that was not a pun uh, on purpose. Uh, but I think. Long term, the stuff needs to be consolidated. Like I said, you just don't need 100 marijuana companies. And so companies with big balance sheets and that have professional management teams are going to end up owning this stuff. Uh, because like I said, the, the management of these new cannabis companies is just not up. It's not professional grade for running a multi-billion dollar a year business. And so ultimately, you need to have companies like Altria, like Constellation, like Diageo come in and own the space. And so I think you're right that if Altria is patient and waits for for the assets to come to the, come to them, people to say, hey, I need a white knight. I can't run this by myself. I need financing. I think Altria can make money here long term. They certainly have enough cash to to buy the marijuana assets. So I just I think we need to see a little more execution from Altria. Obviously, the recent uh, M&A activity with uh, Kronos and Jewel and everything has been disappointing, to put it mildly. So. Uh, I think you're right that there's potentially long-term upside there, but let's see management deliver a little bit more before we get too excited. That's helpful. So, so I guess to recap, it's not something that you consider in your in your core thesis for for Altria. I think you can very easily get to owning the stock at the current price just based on the nicotine business, and then if they manage to find a successful marijuana strategy, that's incremental value on top of the current price. Mm-hmm. Anyone else want to hop on? Or I'll get to the last uh, question that was submitted to me uh, by Tex, uh, which was my thoughts on Disney. 
which, uh, yeah, so Walt Disney, let's see, let me get the price chart here. For about five years, it was trading around 100 to $120 a share. And then in 2019, it popped up to 150 when they finally announced their streaming strategy. Everyone had been waiting to see what was Disney going to do about Netflix and the changing content world. So it looked like Disney was finally kind of firing on all cylinders, obviously, and then the pandemic hit. And that was good for the streaming business, of course, because people were stuck at home and, uh, and Disney Plus got tons of, of new subscribers. Uh, but this was not great for the company's overall financials because Disney Plus is still a kind of a growth business that they're sinking cash into right now. Um, whereas their existing businesses are highly cash flow positive, like the parks and the cruises and uh, the media, like the TV channels and Radio Disney, all that stuff. Uh, all that stuff plus box office had been very good and then dried up during the pandemic. And so, obviously, I think they lost money last year. They came very close to losing money. Yeah, they were losing money last year. This year, they're still trading at, what, 70 or 80 times uh, trailing earnings. So, basically, Disney's earnings dried up during the pandemic. And so, the stock had gotten to 200 at the beginning of the year, kind of the height of reopening excitement. Like, everyone's going to be back on Disney cruises and back at Disney, uh, the Disney theme parks and everything. And then with Delta and now with the new variant, uh, that optimism has quickly faded just over the past couple of weeks. The stock's gone from 170 to 142 today. So what is that, 20% down almost on a, on a Dow Jones component on one of the biggest companies in the U.S. So it's certainly a big enough move to get my attention. Uh, yeah, the stock closed right at 52-week lows, 142.04 is, is the lowest it's been since last year. Um, I think the issue with Disney, I think, a lot of people own it as an economic reopening play, and I think that's the right way to think about it. Uh, like I said, the the real profit centers there are your theme parks, your, your cruises, that sort of stuff that requires a hands-on experience. Uh, yeah, what we've seen in travel so far is the premium destination, the kind of the top shelf assets have recovered the fastest, and kind of the marginal stuff has not done as well. And so uh, Disney's obviously top tier in terms of their parks, kind of the best in the world. Uh, so I think that's the right way to think about it as a reopening play. Uh, however, the, the streaming business is going to struggle to make money for a long time. Obviously, they're competing against Netflix, who has not cared about making a profit ever. And so that uh, that's going to ding Disney's margins for many years compared to uh, when they got to sell content to the cable companies or through box office where they got fat profit margins. So that's a long-term structural headwind. It doesn't it doesn't ruin the the investment case for Disney or anything, but I think people need to be a little more cautious in terms of how fast that is going to pay off for them. Because you look at the analyst models on the streaming companies, and like people are estimating that five different streaming companies are all going to be highly successful over the next few years. It's like how are these companies all going to earn more than they were earning from? the old media ecosystem. I don't think the average person wants eight different subscriptions uh, to watch TV. Uh, so that's one concern. And then the other is that Disney is quite tied to the economy. Uh, if you look at their earnings after 2008, Disney's earnings peaked in 2007, and then they would not exceed that in terms of earnings per share until 2012. So it was five years to recover the last time the economy dropped. Um, yeah, and so I think what the analysts let me look at earnings. Analysts are essentially modeling it, returning to where it was prior to COVID in 2024, $7 a share, which would put the stock at 20 times 2024 earnings, which seems like a reasonable price if they get there. But based on their experience coming out of the financial crisis, I wouldn't be surprised if they're delayed a little bit more. And then obviously you've got kind of the, the headline risk if uh, we get more quarantines, more lockdowns, if the U.S. Uh, puts more travel restrictions in place, then then you could see another 5 or 10% down day on Disney. So I don't think the stock's outright cheap here. 20 times 2024 20, earnings is, seems kind of fair. Uh, you'll probably do fine buying it here. It's not something that screams to me, hey, I need to own this today. Because obvious, uh, obviously, uh, oftentimes sentiment swings too far from one direction to the other. Like uh, the pendulum doesn't stop at fair value. You'll get You'll go from overvalued to straight to undervalued. And so uh, if Disney gets back to like 110, 120, kind of where it was trading before they announced the D plus and all that in 2019, 
I think that's where you start uh, taking a big position. But like I said, if you really like the brands or it's kind of the sort of stock that you want to buy for your kids because you want them to kind of enjoy the the perks of being a shareholder of America, of brands they like, I think at 140, yeah, it's, it's fine. It's okay. I, I wouldn't mind if somebody... If some if somebody gave me Disney stock, I would be in no rush to sell it today. But I'm not in a rush to buy it either. I think it's fairly valued here. But maybe it bounces in the short term because it's clearly gotten caught up in the tax loss selling uh, uh, bugs that we've seen in the past few weeks. Uh, so yeah, so that's answering that reader question. And then anyone else want to hop on? Good evening. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. For, thanks for all the information. It's uh, interesting hearing about uh, some of your various takes. I was. Curious um, on uh, Northwest uh, Natural. Uh, I know you talked about them a while back, the natural gas producer, I think in like Washington, Oregon, and they fell pretty hard when the governor said they were not going to do net gas. And then they, you know, trail back up. And I think yep. they're right back down to where you kind of recommended them. Um, That's right. Yep. And, yeah. And I, I'm, I'm not an intelligent person when it comes to natural gas or utilities, but I think the premise of what I'm understanding now for their fall is, you know, with that gas pricing going up, it may take a while for them to get, you know, the various uh, price increases through regulators uh, to make sure they can cover that natural gas hedge, if you will. So just curious if you had any thoughts of that being a safe haven and all the craziness going on, uh, given it's kind of fallen back where you originally recommended it. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for bringing that up. I, I've been watching it, but I hadn't noticed that it was over the last week, it's fallen back to the 52-week lows. Uh, yeah, so you raise a very good point. Uh, specifically, let me just make one general comment, which is the utility stocks as a group, kind of XLU is the ETF I've been following over the past kind of month or two. And that's tied to interest rates. Uh, as interest rates go up, people people want to higher yields from their dividend stocks. And so a stock like Northwest Natural, ticker NWN for people that are listening, uh, it pays a 4.5% dividend and it raises it every year. I believe it's a dividend aristocrat, so it's raised it for at least 25 years in a row. So this is the sort of stock that people own as a, as a bond alternative because you you figure you get your 4.5% yield and a little bit of price appreciation now and then uh, compared to buying a bond that pays 2%. That's attractive. Uh, but like I said, if interest rates go up, people will say, hey, I don't want 4.5% on my utility stock. Now I want 5%. And so that causes the stock to drop a little bit to hit that new yield level. So that's the kind of the broader macro outlook. And then what you said specifically on, on natural gas is true as well. I... I haven't checked their latest quarterly results, but when I read their 10K, they do have some hedging on natural gas, but they are exposed to higher prices. They're not fully hedged. And so, as you mentioned, that if, if prices go up and stay up for a long time, they will have to get rate approvals to, to raise rates. Uh, uh, some of it is cost offsetting, so they, they get to charge a flat margin, but there's, there's some price risk there. I don't think the price of natural gas will stay up indefinitely. Uh, it's easier to bring new natural gas online than oil because natural gas is a domestic market, more domestic than oil, which is more international. And it's very, uh, if the government and ESG people permit it, it's pretty easy to bring new natural gas online. The U.S. has an abundance of it. Um, and I think Politicians are going to realize that if people are paying $6 for natural gas this winter, that they're going to get voted out of office next year because uh, people people can't really live without their heat. Uh, so I don't see natural gas staying up forever. I think oil is the one that's going to be more bullish long-term than natural gas. Um, but you're right, it's a short-term headwind. They could certainly lose earnings this year, next year, uh, if prices don't reverse. Uh, longer term, though, you're looking at 16 times earnings. Analysts see it growing at 5% a year uh, over the next five years. So what is that, a 6% earnings yield, of which they pay 4.5% out as the dividend. And, yeah, like you mentioned, the stock's at 52-week lows. Uh, let me see, prior to COVID, yeah, in 2019, it was trading at $70, and I was trading at 43 so in different economic conditions, people felt that the appropriate dividend yield for it was under 3%, and now it's offering 4.5%. So I'd say it's low enough to be to be a good bond alternative at this price, but uh, we'll see. Anything can go lower in the short run. 
Very true. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the feedback. And then uh, just, just for a quick fun one. Uh, and I'm just curious, uh, Napa, I think uh, the wine made another one you'd mentioned a while back, and that's also kind of reverse course with all the other belays in the market lately. And I'm just curious if that kind of falls not necessarily within the consumer staples, but is that kind of in that area in terms of what's happening to the stock right now? Yeah, so this one's called Duckhorn Portfolio, uh, ticker Napa, which you can probably guess it owns a bunch of wineries on the West Coast. Uh, IPO'd, not a spec, thankfully, but a traditional IPO in March of this year, uh, I believe $17.00. Uh, their first quarterly earnings as a public company was tremendous, way ahead of what people had thought at the IPO times. So it went up to 25, uh, but now it's fallen back to 18. So uh, if you liked it at the IPO, you can get it at the same price now. Uh, it falls into my, I like it for two reasons. I like luxury stocks and I like uh, I like vice stocks, like I was saying with marijuana and tobacco and alcohol. And so this falls nicely into the category of being upscale wine. Like half of the wine they sell is over $50 a bottle. So I think that puts you well above the, the, the usual complaint with wine is that it's too price competitive. Because like all the $10, $15 bottles are just merciless, the competition there. But I think Duckhorn has established or bought up uh, high-quality brands that have better growth potential. There's also strong direct-to-consumer play. Tons of people order through their website, order in a recurring way. And so, like with a bark box, like once you get a customer, they tend to be sticky if they like the wine and they get a, a better price or better service from reordering regularly from the company. You don't have to pay the retailer a cut. Uh, so I think the, that's an interesting model. And then well, it's growing at 40% a year top line, I believe. Uh, let me see. What was the last... I don't have it in front of me, but I believe 40% top line growth. Um, and yeah, and so it was really expensive after the IPO. I think it got up to 50 times earnings, but now it's down to 33 times next year's earnings with the recent sell off. And we'll be down to 25 times uh, two years out earnings because earnings are growing uh, at a high clip. I think that's quite a bargain in alcohol. You look at a, slow, a slower moving company like a Brown Foreman, which sells Jack Daniels. Uh, which grows at seven or eight percent a year, uh, and it's a very high margin kind of upscale brand. Uh, particularly, some of their other uh, whiskeys and tequilas are, are higher margin, and that thing usually trades at thirty-five or forty times earnings. So that's only growing at seven or eight percent a year. But the market has long decided that it's worth paying that price for such a premium product, and so I think Duckhorn will, as a long-term holding trade at 30, uh, 35 times earnings. It's kind of in the Estee Lauder and Nike, or kind of these these companies that are always expensive because they've got good brands and they've got a strong direct-to-consumer play. And so I think I think it's squarely back in the buy price here under $20. Thanks, thanks for the feedback. Anecdotally, uh, I'm told to my neighboring uh, Whole Foods, obviously upscale place, that Duck Corner Decoy, which are Napa brands, are, are two of their top sellers. So it's always a, always good to know anecdotally uh, uh, that their wine is good as well. So thanks thanks for the responses. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's good to that's good to hear. I'm looking for it when I when the pandemic finally winds down and I travel back to the US. I'll be sampling the product. So looking forward to it. All right. Anyone else? All right, that's all the questions I have here. So thank you all for joining. I hope you had a good time. It was informative and look forward to seeing you again for the next episode and have a great evening.